Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's six-ish on Sunday night. Welcome to the Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX935. Tonight, my guest is Andrea Barnett who has written an absolutely wonderful biography of four very ordinary people who did extraordinary things. The book is called Visionary Women, and the subtitle is How Rachel Carson, Jane Jacobs, Jane Goodall, and Alice Waters Changed Our World. And they really did, as you're going to hear. Andrea's book points out that everything on this earth is interconnected and interwoven. Nothing exists in isolation, meaning that Every action or policy that is careless or cavalier or badly thought out is going to affect everything else. So we need our champions and curators to make sure that what's being done in the name of progress is actually the kind of progress that progresses rudimentary human needs. This is an exhaustive biography. There's actually 60 pages in the bibliography reflecting over 160 related books and articles Andy read for reference, many more than once. I call her Andy. Full disclosure, she's a friend, but that makes her no less of a fabulous writer, which she really is. My interview with her was unfortunately perforce over the phone because she lives in New York. So please forgive the less than stellar sound quality I think you'll agree she's worth it, and so are the subjects of her biography, a couple of whom I confess I didn't really know about before reading this biography. What I see is the hardship with you biographers and what you must run into is people who know the subject and are interested in them already know a whole lot about them through other biographers or the subject's own publicity machine. And people who don't know the subject don't know to be interested in them. (laughs) So I don't know how you accomplish a a fresh and compelling and original biography in in either of those instances, which you definitely have, and you can tell us about the process that's involved with that and how many years it took you, Andy. It was probably five years, but it was every day. The reading started even before that. It's interesting. It was very hard sort of halfway through to remember what people don't know. But I kept trying to think about what I didn't know. And, and probably like most people, I knew I knew Rachel Carson had written Silent Spring, and I knew she started the environmental movement. And I knew it was about the dangers of DDT. That was sort of it. I didn't know her life story. I didn't know she was born desperately poor, that she had the burden of supporting her entire family all her life, five members of the family at one point. Her father, her mother, her father was was sort of a door-to-door salesman, but not successful. And then he got ill and couldn't really hold down their jobs. And then she had a a sister who married a ne'er-do-well, who immediately left as as soon as she'd had two children. So she had to support her sister, who was sickly also, and then died, and her sister's children. And then one of her sister's children then had a, a son with a man who disappeared. And so she had the burden of family her entire life, but she was completely uncomplaining and, and just took that as a given. How did she? Because she became a marine biologist, so how did she get to college if she was poor? She was a very, very good student, and she got a scholarship or a partial scholarship. Her father had bought a large tract of land near Pittsburgh. His plan was to sell the lot and enough money to support the family and support her tuition. It turned out to be a very bad investment. No one wanted any of his lots. And so she got a scholarship, had debt, 
and then she got another scholarship to go and get a master's. But in the summer, she would take jobs being a teaching assistant and also writing any little article she could. She trained uh, as an English major at Penn College, yeah. and because she admired this science professor so much, she then got really interested in science and became a marine biologist. I don't know if she became an official right. marine she, biologist. She, Did she actually get a PhD in marine biology? No, what happened was she graduated as a science major and then the science professor really inspired her to change from English to biology and encouraged her to try to apply to John Hopkins for a master's degree with the idea that she could maybe go on and get a PhD. But it was during the Depression, and she was supporting her family, working part-time at the University of Maryland, teaching undergraduates, plus trying to do as many freelance articles as she could about the sea to support the family. And she had to drop out of Johns Hopkins. She finished her master's just barely, and then she had entered a PhD program in zoology and couldn't finish, couldn't go on because, you know, really she had to support her family. She looked to be a writer. But then she fell in love with science. But if you were a woman and a scientist, really meant all you could do is teach, or you could perhaps edit other scientists' reports, which is actually what happened when she finished college. She couldn't get a job as a scientist, but she got a job with the Fish and Wildlife Department editing scientists who were in the field to report. And this is actually when she first began to read early reports of the dangers of DDT, which was a poison gas that had been invented during World War II and was really helped win the war. It, it killed insect-borne diseases that men in the trenches were getting malaria and cholera, and it was considered a sort of miracle compound. But no one had done any research about its long-term danger to humans or to the ecosystem. DDT was very much like sarin, which is a nerve poison, and it basically paralyzes the muscles of breathing, which is how it kills things. So Fish and Wildlife Department started to do some research on these poisonous chemicals because the chemical companies had a surfeit of product at the end of the war, and they wanted to turn all of this product into domestic uses, and, and so was born the domestic pesticide business. And initially, people were so excited about DDT, they were spraying it on their bed sheets to kill bed bugs. They were spraying it on the walls of their kitchens. But one of the things the Fish and Wildlife Department tests were beginning to show is that DDT didn't just break down. It, it slowly moved up the food chain, and so it didn't just kill bugs, but it also poisoned birds and fish and eventually sickened humans. So Carson saw those early reports right after the war, and at that point she was editing these reports for the Fish and Wildlife Service. EDT at that point was being sprayed by air for huge swaths of land, thousands and thousands of acres, and there was beginning to be a little bit of worry about what that really meant. So she saw this and was really alarmed, and she approached Reader's Digest and a few other general interest magazines and said, you know, I have access to this really interesting information. Turns out DDT maybe not quite as benign as people thought, and maybe we have to exercise more care in using these chemicals. And none of the magazines wanted to touch it. They wanted feel-good stories. The war was finally over. And people were really looking at pesticides as a kind of panacea that would rid the earth of insect pests. And no one really understood that insects were all part of the food chain, and that it may be you could kill certain insects, but there could be an insect, a certain fish needed, and then that fish was the food of a certain mammal, and then that mammal was the food of something else, and that you could really have a whole collapse of the food chain. We're hearing listener from Andrea Barnett how Rachel Carson saved us from poisoning ourselves. One woman did that researched and then fought against DDT that was being sprayed everywhere, ostensibly to kill bugs, but also poisoning us in the process. Visionary Women is the name of Andrea Barnett's book. It's about how Rachel Carson, known to many of you by her seminal book, Silent Spring, changed our world, along with three other women you're going to hear about shortly, Jane Jacobs, Jane Goodall, Alice Waters. Author and biographer Andrea Barnett is my guest on tonight's The Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Lagunas KX 935. So Carson's concern began in you know, the late 40s, but no one wanted to touch it. And then what happened was, in the mid-50s, she got a letter from someone she knew saying, 
know, I live in Massachusetts, and there's going to be a three-state spray campaign of DVT that's going to take place all summer. And I've seen songbirds who were in the path of the spray just fall from their limbs and, and die in my backyard. You know, 10 or 20 birds just in my backyard, and this can't be legal, this can't be okay. What is this doing for humans if it's doing this to wildlife? And so Carson wrote to E.B. White, E.B. White, of course, listener, was the famous author of Charlotte's Web, as well as the White in Strunk and White's Elements of Style, a writer's Bible. He was also one of the most prominent contributors to the magazine The New Yorker. Carson said, this is a really important story. Someone at The New Yorker should be following it, because at this point, she was a nature writer. She was writing about the sea. She fell in love with the sea and the history of sea creatures and the tides, the things that fed the whole web of life. She found all of that very interesting, and she didn't write about things like this. And E.B. White said, it certainly is important, and I'll, I'll bring it to William Sean at The New Yorker, who is the editor-in-chief, but I can't do it. I'm really busy. You know, maybe you should do this book. You're such a good writer. So Rachel really backed into it. She didn't think of herself as a, a writer of this kind of thing, and privately she called it the poison book. All she knew is it was a really, really important story, and The New Yorker said they would definitely publish it. So she knew that at least there would be some readership, but she didn't expect it to really kind of change the world. But change the world, it did. Just to let you know here that you're tuned to The Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Lubina's KX935. I have as my guest tonight, Andrea Barnett. She's a personal friend, but that's not why I'm interviewing her. She's a brilliant writer and has written a really fabulous biography of four women who changed the world. It's called Visionary Women, subtitled How Rachel Carson, Jane Jacobs, Jane Goodall, and Alice Waters Changed Our World. And I'm having her tell us briefly about each of those women in turn. Rachel Carson, though somewhat impoverished by family circumstances, had done very well at school and won a partial scholarship to college where she became an English major, intending to become a writer. But she got seduced by a very exciting science teacher into moving towards a degree in biology and eventually got a job at the government's Bureau of Fisheries, which ultimately served both her talents as a writer and a lover of everything to do with the sea and sea creatures and fostered her future as an environmentalist with her growing understanding of the fact that everything in nature connected with everything else. During her time at the Bureau, anything in terms of the scientists' reports that came across her desk that was interesting, she would try to spin into a story that would interest everyday people. And her stories became quite popular in the periodicals in which they were published. Any place who wanted a sort of feel-good article about the ocean, which eventually led to her first book about the sea and then a second book. The first book completely flopped, and the second book was a great success and kind of put her on the map as a popular writer about nature and about the sea. So at this point she had a forum in order to then get readership when she started to talk about DDT? That's exactly right. Because of the exposure in The New Yorker, which excerpted her second book about the sea, she had a real following and she understood that human health was ultimately at stake beyond poisoning bugs and birds and fish that it was, it was going to bite us back. So she wrote this really lucid, beautiful book about the way the ecosystem worked and the way the pesticides affected the ecosystem. And what's amazing when you read Silent Brain is it's not long. It's, she talked to scientists all over the world. She talked to doctors. She talked to entomologists. What she really did was she knit the whole story together. There was research out there in these various fields, but she was able because she was an English major and a really good prose writer, yeah. right? Yeah, she's a beautiful, beautiful writer, wrote very lyrical, poetic prose. She could turn dry, very technical science into exceedingly beautiful and readable prose. And so people could get this horrifying information in a way that they could understand it. And she also was saying for years, you can do something about this, we can do something about it. And she really believed that everyday people, if armed with the truth and the facts, 
could make a difference and could petition their government and could really have an effect. And she was very much of an optimist. And, and she was right. At that point, there was a real backlash against the pesticide companies. And people began to say, we want more research and we want more tests of these things. We, we want to know what these chemicals are before we spray them in our vegetable gardens or on our yards. And, you know, that's an era when I grew up. I remember there was a pesticide my mother didn't love. I mean, under her sink with so many bug sprays and things. And there was a sort of paradigm shift after Rachel Carson wrote Simon Spring where people started to think, well, what are these things? You know, what are we spraying on our walls? There were things like bug bombs that you could release in your own kitchen and it was a fog of pesticides that poisoned presumably any bugs in the house, but there was no thought at the time that maybe they were often poisoning humans. It is amazing, Andy. I mean, it is something that certainly I don't have those, even the hornet sprays and all of those things that we just used by rote in the past. So I guess this was one person that we have to thank for stopping us doing all this. Absolutely. And the more she researched and the deeper she got into it, the more she began to see that these pesticides had very clear connections to leukemia and other cancers and that they were really akin to nuclear radiation, nuclear fallout. And in the late 50s and 60s, people were terrified and obsessed with nuclear fallout. And her genius in describing what pesticides did was to point out the parallels between pesticides and nuclear fallout. And suddenly people could understand that there were both these invisible poisons fell to the earth and entered the food chain. And there was a great alarm in, in I think it was 1960, they discovered that the grass in the dairy states of the United States had so many components of radioactive fallout that the milk had really high concentrations of, of nuclear fallout and that children were drinking the radioactive milk and that children's teeth in the United States had strontium-90 in it as a result. And there was just this incredible scare. And what Carson was able to do was to say, you know, these pesticides we've embraced have the same properties. And so on spring completely changed the conversation. People read it in the New Yorker and they were shocked and horrified and they started writing to their congressmen and saying, I can't believe none of these poisons have been tested. And I should also say that during the writing of the book, this is such a sad part of the story, is Carson had had a brush with breast cancer and it had come back and throughout the writing of the book, she was dying of cancer, but she wouldn't tell anyone but a few close friends because she was afraid the chemical companies would say, well, this crazy old lady, the only reason she's interested in cancer is because she's dying of it and hysteric and she's being hyperbolic. So she kept the fact that she was dying secret. And she actually testified before Congress wearing a wig. She was bald from chemo and she was barely able to walk and she said it was arthritis. And very soon after she testified, a year or two later, the government started to do research and they discovered Carson was right and the chemical companies were wrong and EDG was eventually banned. But Carson's really credited with starting the environmental movement because she showed people the connection. You can't just put poison one place. One bit of water, nature doesn't work in separate compartments, but all life is interconnected. And if you pull a pesticide into water somewhere, sooner or later it will flow into water in other places. That the whole ecosystem was connected and you couldn't just think you could spray one area and it would stay there. So that was really revolutionary and chemical companies mounted a real smear campaign after the book came out and said she's an amateur, she's a writer for popular audiences, she hasn't written academic papers, she's a communist, she's trying to shut down our food supply. I mean she was really attacked in really vicious and personal ways. A reminder here that you're tuned to The Sharer now with me, Sharon James, on Lagunas KX935. My interviewee tonight is my friend and fabulous writer, biographer, Andrea Barnett. She has written a book called Visionary Women, How Rachel Carson, Jane Jacobs, Jane Goodall, and Alice Waters Changed Our World. And I have to admit that these were women, I'd heard of Jane Goodall, I'd heard of Alice Waters. I really didn't know about Rachel Carson, and I really didn't know about Jane Jacobs. Oh, see, that's so 
so interesting. Many times when I'm doing readings, a few people will say to me, I never had heard about one or two of these women. And that's very heartening. I mean, these are stories that we, we can't afford to forget. But what you did in your book, which, Andy, I have to congratulate you. I mean, it read as a novel. One always thinks of biographies about these highfalutin people that are just geniuses in their fields and you would never know them in real life. But the way you tell the story of these women, it feels like they're people we would know in real life and we follow their trajectory like a novel. It's like a work of fiction. It's fabulous. From they met a boy and they went and did this or they didn't do that or they decided to take a trip there and that brought them to this person and then they dated that person and and then they changed the world. (laughs) So, I mean, that... And they're very ordinary people, you know, just people like us. They're not destined for greatness and they didn't necessarily even go to university or get degrees and they struggled in a very patriarchal society to even enter a professional world and even when they did, they weren't accepted as well as the most pedestrian man would have been. So tell us about Jane Jacobs, because she epitomizes the ordinary woman who just goes to her local council and says, you've got to not do this. You know, she right. could be yeah. any one of us yeah. easily, right? Yeah, absolutely. Jane Jacobs was a writer and an urbanist and a social activist who is credited with saving Greenwich Village from the wrecking ball and starting the historic preservation movement. He wrote a culture-changing book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities, which was published in 1961 and absolutely changed the way people looked at cities, the way planners thought of cities, and deposed the master planner Robert Moses and began the historic preservation movement. She was someone who had no training in architecture or urban planning, completely self-taught. She'd grown up in Scranton, Pennsylvania. She decided she wanted to be a writer, and she wanted to move to New York City. She'd come to New York after high school, no college degree, no college experience whatsoever. She'd taken one secretarial course, and she'd learned to be a stenographer, thinking that would sort of tide her over until she landed a job as a writer, as a journalist. Her older sister, Dorothy, moved to New York and got in a cheap little apartment so Jane moved to New York in the middle of the Depression, and of course, the only thing she could really do was to be a secretary, and she got in a series of secretarial jobs. And when she was unemployed, which was often because no one was hiring many women, and certainly not a woman who had no college degree, and certainly not in the Depression when bread lines were wrapping around many blocks, and it was a very hard time for jobs of any kind. So she started walking in various neighborhoods, at the Fur District and the Flower District, and just was fascinated that there were these little mini economies all through the city, different neighborhoods that were different things were happening. And so she started writing little pieces about what she saw in each neighborhood. And she, her sister, lived in a little tiny apartment in Greenwich Village and had fallen in love with the irregularity of the street, the, the street life, and the sort of monocods groceries and, and the fact that it was really a village within a city. So she started walking these various neighborhoods and she talked to the, all the workers who worked at the Flower District and then she wrote a piece about the Fur District and the furriers and how they got their squares. When you say she wrote a piece, you know, there were no such things as blogs in those days. So she was writing with the hope of selling them to a newspaper? Right, right. Completely or- time when there were several interest magazines and she thought, well, maybe I can write something about these various neighborhoods and sell them. And she wrote about each one of those and sold these very short pieces to Vogue magazine. And she was still doing secretarial work to this, you know, after hours. Finally, she got some magazine jobs. And again, they were mainly secretarial, but she was able to get a job for a metals magazine, which is, of course, not at all what she wanted to do, but it was at least a writing editing job. And the editor was very lazy, so she started doing more and more stories. And her stories were quirky and colorful, and more and more people were reading them. And one time she met a man named Bob, who was an architect, and the two of them started walking the city together. And with Bob, she became increasingly interested in architecture. And so after a series of secretarial jobs with various magazines, she 
walked into the offices of Architectural Forum and basically talked them into hiring her as a writer at that point. She'd done some general interest articles about the historic district of Philadelphia or about Washington, D.C. during cherry blossom season. And she'd done enough general interest articles that she had some clips. So she walked into Architectural Forum and said, I haven't been to college and I have no training as an architect or as a planner, but this is my writing and I... I'm fascinated with architecture. And the editor just sort of admired her for chutzpah and said, okay, do a sample article. And he gave her an assignment, and she had it in in a couple of days, and it was really interesting. And so he said, okay, I'm going to hire you. And so she had this job at Architectural Forum. And one day her editor sent her to Philadelphia to write about an urban renewal project. At the time, cities were in trouble. People were abandoning the cities for the newly minted suburbs. So the idea was to knock down whole districts of old buildings and replace them with high-rise towers. And this was very much coming out of the academy and out of architecture schools all over the country. And it was highly theoretical. And their master planners, Robert Moses in New York City and Ed Bacon in Philadelphia, were two of the biggest proponents of this new wrecking ball approach to revitalization. And the idea was it would knock down whole swaths of the old city, erasing the urban grid, and they would put up these high-rise housing towers. And the towers would be connected by highways, which would be a great convenience for the car. And the old structure of cities was outmoded. The new structure was going to be more accommodating to the modern world. This was all under the banner of something called urban renewal and these sort of large-scale interventions from on high. The parts of the neighborhoods that were being torn down, they were designating slums. And the reason they were calling them slums is they were overcrowded, but those who could had moved out to the suburbs. So there was the sense that old neighborhoods were slums and that put the people in these new high-rise housing towers and it would be a whole new world for them. There were also middle-class neighborhoods. It wasn't just very, very poor neighborhoods, but it was just a whole different shape for cities that instead of a crowded neighborhood with stores on the ground floors with buildings, there would be these sleek monolithic housing towers. There would be maybe one supermarket on the ground floor. That was that was the idea. And this was nationwide? This was nationwide. It was happening in East Coast cities because they were more congested and they were 19th century and 18th century in their style. And so it was starting in the East Coast, but it was really spreading all over the country. This idea that you just knock down the old part of the city and put up high-rise towers. And Sam Jacobs didn't really know anything. She had no particular opinion about urban renewal at the time. So when she was sent to Philadelphia to report on one of these large-scale demolition projects, she went sort of with open eyes. Edmund Bacon was the executive director of the Philadelphia City Planning Commission. He was an architect and an urban planner and author and a proponent of the so-called moving spirit of modernity, along with Le Corbusier and other noted architects of the time. In this biography of Jane Jacobs, Andrea Barnett quotes from Corbusier's book entitled Towards a New Architecture, his exhortation to kill the street. Cafes and places of recreation will no longer be the fungus that eats up the pavements of Paris. Corbusier is saying we needed a new type of street that would be exclusively a machine for traffic. And the celebrated Edmund Bacon agreed. Just a reminder here that you're tuned to the Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX935. My guest tonight is author and biographer Andrea Barnett has written a book called Visionary Women, how Rachel Carson, Jane Jacobs, Jane Goodall, and Alice Waters changed our world. She's currently telling us about Jane Jacobs, who fought against the Corbusiers and Bacons and Robert Moseses of her time to save her own immediate beloved neighbourhood of Greenwich Village, but in the process managed to single-handedly stir up a far-reaching protest movement to this somewhat inhumane so-called progressive attitudes towards urban revitalization that were leading to a destruction of the historical aspects of our cities. This first came to light to Jane Jacobs when she was sent on behalf of the magazine Architectural Forum to write a piece about a planned revitalization of Philadelphia. 
Edmund Bacon met her at the station. He said, first I'm going to take you to the old neighborhood we're knocking down, and then we'll go to one of the new high-rise projects and you can see what we're doing. And he was very charming and courtly, and they got to one of the old neighborhoods, and Jacob saw all these people popping in and out of stores, and there was all kinds of street life, and people were chatting on the street and hanging out, and people were sitting on stoops, and it was extremely vital and crowded. And then he said, well, okay, now we'll go to one of the projects. So they walked a couple of blocks, and they got to this area where there were high-rise housing towers surrounded by kind of some dun-colored grass. And there were no people anywhere. And Jacob stared at him and said, where are the people? And he said, oh, they don't appreciate these, you know, it's what's important is the view corridor, and this is very tidy, and, you know, this is going to be a whole new way of living. And she thought to herself, something here isn't working. The human quotient has been forgotten. So she went back to Architectural Forum and said, the housing project is a complete failure. What these highbrow planners envision and what the theory is isn't working. They're dead places. There's no human activity. And her colleague said, no, but these people are trying to save the city. You shouldn't say that. And she said, I, I have to. So she wrote the article, and everyone's surprised. It was a huge success. There were more letters that came into architectural forum than ever before. And then she started becoming very, very interested in actually what did make the city work and what made certain blocks feel inviting and wonderful and others menacing. She was really interested in understanding what made a city function. And she got a, an opportunity to write another article for Fortune magazine, which eventually led to a book contract. She started visiting cities all over the country and watching people, talking to people, asking them what they liked about their neighborhoods, what they didn't. And one day when she was in Harlem, in a busy old neighborhood that the planners would have called a slum, she had an epiphany. And the epiphany was the cities were like the natural world. They had an ecology all their own, but it was a human ecology. It was people and street life that made a city tick. And you knock down a whole neighborhood, whole cloth, you wiped out the street life, and you wiped out the connected tissue that kind of knit together one neighborhood into the next and allowed one neighborhood to flow into the next. So in the same way that Rachel Carson saw the natural world as web, Jacobs was seeing that the cities were also a web of interconnections, that they were a whole series of elaborate relationships, and that really disrupted a whole section and what that out, you disturb the connective tissue. And what's so interesting is they were speaking about different fields, but they were both saying the same thing. Carson was drawing attention to the interconnectedness and the fragility of the natural world, and his whole idea of interdependency ran completely counter to the notion that nature in the middle world could be examined or understood apart from the larger system. A city is a living organism. The street life is the connective tissue, and humans are the creatures. So when she wrote her book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, just like Carson, the book was read by people who weren't in the architectural and planning profession. It had always been a very elite and kind of hermetic profession. And suddenly everyday people were reading about what made a city work and why those high-rise housing towers coming to just warehouse the poor weren't working and actually were kind of petri dishes for crime. They were places that, because there were no people, there were no eyes on the streets, there was no feeling of safety. What made a city safe is if there were lots of people on the street. Street life made cities safe and street life made cities civil. You're tuned to The Sharon Now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX935. My guest tonight is author and biographer Andrea Barnett. She's written a fabulous multi-biography called Visionary Women about how Rachel Carson, Jane Jacobs, Jane Goodall and Alice Waters each observed in their own way how so-called progress was eroding our various ecosystems and infrastructures, getting rid of toxic sprays that were infecting our lands and rivers and seas. It was Rachel Carson's successful campaign fighting against the erosion of cities and street life, giving way to inhumane high-rises, and an overemphasis on freeways was Jane Jacobs. Alice Waters saw us turning more towards industrialized processed foods and away from fresh organic ones, and helped create a counter-movement of slow food and edible schoolyards. And Jane Goodall, who we're going to hear about next, a 
course, made us realise that there were other loving and compassionate and intelligent animals than ourselves. I loved what you'd written about Jane Goodall, and I thought I would skim it because I thought, well, I know about Jane Goodall. But it was so compelling what you wrote and the way you wrote it. Her early life and what it actually took before she got the chimps to communicate with her. This really read like a thriller, and I, I, was, I couldn't wait to hear what happened next. So tell us a little bit about how you approached that. Did you actually talk to her? I did. That was one of the most challenging things, was actually to find a date where... I could talk to her because Jane Goodall today still is on the road 330 years fighting to protect habitats and sustainable environments and fighting to protect animals across the world and particularly chimpanzees and she's in Africa. It's a huge amount of time and it's just, it just remains an activist fighting for the quality of our planet. So Jane also, she started as a secretary to anthropologist Louis Leakey. Right. He gave her the job as his secretary because he sort of fancied her. She was very pretty and she didn't have any huge ambitions, right? She from, from a very young age, as most people know, she loved animals and she was a mediocre student and after she finished her high school, she got to secretarial school so that she could get a job somewhere. She worked in London for a few years as a secretary and then at Oxford and she was so bored with the work and so felt compelled to somehow get to a world where she could work with animals. She did have a school friend who lived from Kenya and she had been invited to Kenya and she wrote to her friend in Kenya and said, is the invitation still open? And her friend said, absolutely yes. So Jane quit her job and did an interesting job for three or four months with a two full shifts so that she was working seven days a week for three months until she could save up enough money to pay for the boat passage to Kenya. But she finally did. She got to Kenya and Louis Weekly was by then already a celebrated anthropologist in Nairobi and he was head of the museum, the Natural History Museum. And so Jane called him up cold, which was incredibly brave and audacious, and said, Now I really like to come and talk to you. And so she showed up one day and Lucas gave her a tour of the museum and thought she was extremely pretty and enthusiastic and harder there on the spot as his secretary. What she didn't know was he was a skirt chaser and his former secretary had had an affair with and had, had almost broken up his marriage and had left for England. Jane didn't know any of this, but she started working for them. She was invited by Mickey and his wife to go with them in their annual gig in Old Divide Gorge in Serengeti Plains. So she went for the summer and worked in the blazing sun with another young woman and with the Leakeys. And Leakey really admired her stamina and the fact that she seemed fearless. There were wild animals, there were scorpions. She wasn't squeamish about any of that. She didn't seem to need much sleep. Always enthusiastic, and so one night he said, "You know, I have been trying to find someone who I could send on a study of chimpanzees in the wild, and I haven't raised the money yet, but I'd love you to do it." And she had no training, hadn't been to college, wasn't a zoologist, but he intuitively felt that perhaps sending someone untrained would be a better thing. They wouldn't be so steeped in theory, and also he felt Jane would maybe be unthreatening to chimpanzees. So we went to all the regular sources for money, and everyone said, you know, you've got to be kidding. We're not sending an untrained woman into the wild. So finally, he went to a very unconventional source, a, a wacky Midwestern who was an expert in tools and had seen me give a demonstration of slaughtering a wild animal with spoon-age tools. And he was so impressed with Mickey, he became a funder for his deep expeditions. So Mickey said, you know, I, I want to send someone for this wild chimp study, and I've got just the person. And he got the funding from this American, and off Jane went. And her mother agreed to go with her. Did her mother also have the same love of animals and dreams, or was her mother just being accommodating? And what was her mother doing when Jane was out in the wilds? Her mother was really supportive. Her mother had always wanted to be a writer herself, and she hadn't been able to live that dream. So I think her mother supported Jane's big dreams. And her mother had met Leakey before that day, but left for Nairobi. And Leakey had said, you know, the one thing you could do is you could bring medical supplies and you could help the, the locals. And your mother was in no way a, a doctor or a nurse or had had any medical training. So she showed up with Epsom salt and some Band-Aids, some peroxide and aspirin and there was a little lean-to out of thatch 
and she would open a clinic. And first day, there were six locals there, and she gave them aspirin and band-aids and cleaned up cuts. And the next day, there were 20 people, and pretty soon, she had long lines of people waiting. And so she really earned the trust and the love of the local villagers. At the time, they thought that Jane and her mother were spies, and that they were, they were coming to this game reserve to inflate the count of chimpanzees because now the villagers weren't allowed to hunt or to take wood from the preserve. And so they thought that Jane and her mother were going to say, you know, there are many more chimpanzees than there really were and that more land was going to be taken. So anyway, Jane's mother was a great diplomat in her belief to. And an unsung hero to, uh, A, yeah. have gone with Jane. Did she hope to write about it afterwards? You said she wanted to be a writer. No, I think she wanted to write a novel. And in fact, later she did write a novel. I don't know whether it ever got published, but I think she certainly incorporated elements of Africa in her novel. But she was just basically just, you know, helping with the cooking and keeping the camp tidy and running this little clinic and reading and just being supportive of Jane. I mean, she was really her support system. And that was just unusual, too, to have such a supportive mother and such a, a hardy mother who was willing to live in very, very primitive conditions for months. I mean, they both got malaria and it was, it was very tough living. So if you can't be a trailblazer, be the mother of one so you can go along for the ride. You're tuned to The Sharon now with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX 935. And I have as my guest tonight my friend and author and biographer, Andrea Barnett. She's written a book, Visionary Women, How Rachel Carson, Jane Jacobs, Jane Goodall and Alice Waters Changed Our World. And it's a wonderful potted history of all these trailblazing women who single-handedly did manage to change the world. Rachel Carson, by removing these deadly toxins that were being sprayed everywhere. Jane Jacobs, by saving the most fundamental and historical aspects of America's great cities. Alice Waters, by steering us back to fresh organic foods and away from more industrialized ones that had had all the nutrients eked out of them and Jane Goodall for spending solitary hours and years in the depths of Africa to prove to us something we didn't know at the time, that there were animals other than ourselves who were tool makers like us, had individual personalities, and were loving also like us. I love the romances she had. A couple of guys yeah. that came out to Africa and obviously yeah. there's nothing else to do. But the idea with Jane Goodall was always that she was in love with the chimps, but she was also in love with a few very cute guys that came out to Africa. And I'm definitely in love with life. She was a wild girl. She was a party girl. Nairobi, she was out all night, you know, dancing, party hopping. And she had many romances. In fact, there's easily 15 or 20 pages of that period of time in Nairobi that I cut. Only because it was out of proportion with the rest of her story. There was a very horsey set in Nairobi, and then there was polo, and sort of private polo clubs. And she was a very, very good horsewoman, and so she was part of that set. And she really thought that was kind of stuffy, but she did love riding. How did she become a good horsewoman? When was she riding? She, even as a child, fell in love with animals. She started riding when she was about nine, and she would take the bus by herself to a stable near her house, born in England, and she'd ride as long as she was allowed to ride. She, at one point, she was presented to the queen as a debutante, something she thought was ridiculous, and thought it was ridiculous to wear stockings and a girdle. She was a real tomboy, but there were people who had a certain kind of pedigree, but they didn't have money. She married a baron, the photographer who had come to Gombe to take pictures of the chimpanzees, a Dutch baron, penniless but a charming, handsome man, and all they wanted to do was go back to Gombe and keep watching chimpanzees. She started an organization called Roots and Shoots to get young people interested in doing things to save the planet. And the children from all over the world do everything from butterfly gardens in their schoolyards to weeding invasive plants out of the edges of rivers or helping in dog shelters. There are 121 countries. There are branches of roots and shoots, including in China and Laos, Cambodia. She sort of feels the only hope for the world is in reaching children. She told me about how she began to realize that in order to save animals and the earth, you really had to attend to people 
the people who were poor who were killing the animals because they needed food. So she's become an activist for kind of all human life, and she has started another group that helps the villagers near Gombe and helps especially with microlongs to women who start little pineapple farms and little tree farms and chicken farms. And once the women have a way of making a living, even if it's a modest living, then they really understand how important it is to not pollute water and to plant trees. And so the habitats that were disappearing are now starting to come back because the villagers are left poor. And she's, she's really, really interested in a kind of holistic approach to helping especially people in African countries save their own environments because they understand the damage to chopping down trees. It's just that they've been too poor not to do whatever they need to do to get by. I talked to Alice Waters. Let's move on to her. Alice Waters really launched the sustainable food movement and has continued to advocate for wholesome, good local food. In 1965, on a junior year abroad in France, she fell in love with all things French and with cooking and food, and she came back to Berkeley, California, and she started a restaurant called Chez Panisse, which became the first restaurant to really promote and experiment with local, organic, farm-to-table food. She was in Berkeley in the 60s as the free speech movement was beginning, so she was politicized by the Vietnam War and by a lot of changes that were taking place. And she went to France and fell in love with food, and she was one of the first to realize that food was political. While she was in Paris, she realized that a great deal that went on at the table beyond food was that there was serious conversation and conversation about politics, and the table was the place where people connected to people and talked about things, and it was the beginning of community. So when she came back to Berkeley, what she really wanted to do was to start a restaurant, a kind of clubhouse where she and her friends could meet over wine and good food. So the talk wasn't political. Her idea was just a group of people getting together and food being the great equalizer and just sitting there eating simple good food made for a good life and good conversation right for everyday people it was really about the sensual experience of beautiful food in a beautiful place and really casual and the kind of european experience she had where food was just an integral part of life this was a time when fast food was just taking off and fast and processed food was now a huge part of every supermarket, and people were beginning to eat in their cars and not to sit together, not to prepare food together or to go to restaurants. There were fancy French restaurants, always one or two in each city, but there were no bistros and there were no sort of casual places where you could get good food. It was more and more fast food and processed food and manufactured food. And she saw the trend and she really wanted to make something in Berkeley that was wholesome and fun and beautiful. So she really started as a sensualist, and when I talked to her, she said, you know, at the time, the hippies were running organic food markets in Berkeley, and I never really liked those places. The food was dry and out of scale. It was large, and the places smelled medicinal. The bread was heavy, and I was just really interested in trying to recreate the food I remembered from France, which was so simple and so tasty. She loved cooking for her friends. Like the others, she'd been self-taught. She hadn't been trained as a chef. She'd worked her way through Julia Child's cookbook and then through Elizabeth David, just cooking every recipe. And gradually, we had to realize that in order to have really good-tasting food, you had to have good ingredients. And more and more, she began to see the ingredients that were the best were being raised by farmers who took the most care with their land, didn't use chemicals. And very slowly, she began to see that those farmers who had begun to perfect the idea of organic farming were raising the most beautiful vegetables. And that not only was the food more tasty, it was more healthy, and it was more healthy for the land, and it was more healthy for the planet. And as she said to me, before 1940, before refrigerated boxcar, and before all of these artificial fertilizers and things, all food was local and organic and fresh because there wasn't this national distribution system where food was warehoused in giant warehouses for months where things could be shipped across country in a refrigerated boxcar. It was an industrial idea, and it was an industrial distribution system. And it was the idea that it didn't matter what season, you could have asparagus all year round or peaches, and of course, 
that would all be fine, except the peaches, as we know, and in grocery store when they're out of season, are hard as a rock. They have no flavor. They have no nutritional value because they were picked weeks before you, they get to the supermarket. But this was a whole new idea, and Alice was saying, wait, there's another way. We have to look back to the way it used to be, which was a lot more tasty and a lot more healthy. She said, so there's nothing radical about local organic fresh food. It's a return to a more traditional way of thinking about food. And of course, there weren't many farmers markets when Alice opened Chez Panisse in 1970. But now there are farmers markets everywhere and cooks and consumers, restaurants can be directly connected to the farmer. So she was really intent on bringing back these ideas. And luckily, it was, again, a really good time because her fellow countercultural people who were in Berkeley and in college towns and liberal bastions across the country were beginning to also push back against the idea of mechanized industrial food. And so it was, again, an idea waiting to be articulated and modeled. These are all good causes, but what I loved about her was she was just a hippie who went to France, decided that the whole idea of something very, very simple could exist here, but she also had highly hedonistic taste, and she wanted to use only the best top ingredients, and her restaurant was failing because basically she was buying all this stuff for so much more money than she was then selling it, because the other aspect to her was she had a hugely generous and communal spirit wanted really just to sit down with everybody in a beautiful place that this house she bought to create a restaurant in and have only the best food the best flowers the best tablecloths the best surroundings the best people and she had all of those actually didn't she because she had this entire film crowd from one of the many boyfriends that she picked up along the way and loved sitting down and feeding them. And she also was very democratic, so wanted to also feed all the locals. But a meal that was costing her at the time $6, she was selling for three. So it was hard to get her feet on the ground. And she went through quite a bit. She just happened on a few people that were helpful. Otherwise, the whole enterprise would have collapsed before she became the Alice Waters we know now and was able to actually foment all these fantastic changes of attitude towards food and good quality food. But she had to rein herself in at one point. No, it's so true. She was a sensualist. She was at the, the restaurant was run as a sort of endless party and commune. And she was always spending more than they were making because she wanted it to be beautiful and perfect. She always had the most beautiful flower arrangements. And all of that she really cared about. And you're right, she had learned by doing, and she became more and more serious as time went on, and it was something she really believed in, but it was about sensuality and beauty and sharing with her friends, and they were all overly generous. They would give away meals and bottles of wine. and Local people would bring their vegetables to serve at the restaurant, right? And she would incorporate yeah, that yeah. into her menus. Yeah. What was amazing is she was doing a different menu every single night, and it was her one dish. That's quite incredible, huh, listener? You're tuned to The Sharon Hour with me, Sharon James, on Laguna's KX935, talking tonight to my friend, author, biographer, Andrea Barnett, about a wonderful compendium biography she's written called Visionary Women, how Rachel Carson, Jane Jacobs, Jane Goodall, and Alice Waters changed our world. We're currently talking about Alice Waters, who came back from France, started the restaurant Chez Panisse up in Berkeley, and is now doing something amazing with schools called the Edible Schoolyard, where kids plant the foods they're going to eat for school meals, they grow the vegetables, they prepare them, they cook them, and they eat them happily (laughs) because of all that. And one of the ways Alice Waters initiated that program was she invited all local school teachers to her restaurant Chez Panisse. And it had now been really established as a super top restaurant serving super top food and not as cheap as it used to be, obviously. But she got the mass department, this school, to have their meetings there. And she said, I invited the principals from all of Berkeley's lower schools It's so unheard of to give things to teachers and principals. These people are doing God's work, and yet they're so underpaid. 
It was a surprise for them to be asked to come for a meal, but it worked like a charm. It's a powerful thing to bring people into an unexpected place and then to really have a conversation about something they haven't thought about before. I mean, I loved that. I loved that you brought that to us in the book and then that this edible schoolyard, as it's now called, is this huge, fantastic program. Now, that's another thing that's really exciting. It's spread across the United States and across the world. You know, anyone who grew up in rural America knew where food came from, but in cities, people grow up not knowing where food comes from. So for kids to see that is revelatory. She says that it changes them forever, that they eat everything they grow and cook. There's an excitement about that. And, and so they're connected to their food and to the earth and to their own agency, which is what you want to do. She taught it. Montessori school for a while so she brought those principles in and also they not only had to prepare and cook all the food themselves but they had to do clean-up jobs but instead of telling them okay you're going to go do all the washing up and you're going to sweep the floor they had this little system of cards where the kids took one card and on it it said sweep the floor and another one would take one that said wash the dishes right so they felt they had an element of choice in, in the chore that they were doing which is nice she understood that you had to make it a game think they're still doing that or do you think instead they're just looking at their cell phones and not having the conversation no you know they're not allowed to do that and they understand that that is a distraction you know when i was there just watching there were no computers or cell phones out so you went and watched one of these the edible schoolyard programs yeah i did i went to one class and the kids were first talking about the origin of the meal and they grown certain vegetables and then they were bringing anthropology and history and things into it too and then they talked about how they were going to cook it it was very participatory that's the thing alice understood is that kids like to learn by doing so they were doing the chef's job which was exciting so there's no time for their self well, we're nearing the end of this KX935's The Sharer now, with me, Sharon James, talking to author biographer Andrea Barnett. So I wanted to elaborate a little bit more on the actual writing process of a biography. She's written this 500-page compendium, and I noticed the bibliography had 60 pages worth of references. Explain to the layman how you even start and get through all that. I read all the books very quickly, but then I went back for each one and really decided on which places I wanted to highlight. I did that with each woman, and each woman was maybe six or seven months of writing. So then once I had a full draft, I went back. You know, each book that I read, I took notes, but there were certain books that I knew had a lot of material I would need, and, and I would know I would go back. I would go back and take much more detail. But for instance, I wanted a certain amount of information for the texture of the book about the atmosphere of the 60s and the atmosphere of the 50s. So I read a lot of books about the beats and about the 60s to remind myself, because I lived through it, but it's easy to forget. So I would be reminded of details. You know, there's only a paragraph about the beats, but I read a whole book about the beats. So I did a lot of that. Then after I did an interview, I would thread that or go to their letters, and I would try to get parts of their letters so that each woman's voice was somehow in the narrative. I have a lot of letters in Rachel Carson's, not so many in Jacob's, and a lot in Goodall, too. I think you always have to know way more than ever appears in the book. And I was talking with a few other biographers, and we were laughing at how many stories from people's lives don't make it into the book. But you have to know them to feel you can channel who they were. Totally. Is it easier, or do you prefer working with the dead women, Jane and Rachel, or, or is it nicer to actually be able to work with the living ones, Jane Goodall and Alice Waters, that you could interview. Which did oh, you prefer? Such a good question. Because with the women who are alive, I was really aware that I had to get it right because they're real people and they're living and no one likes to be misrepresented. So I think I was a little more self-conscious with the two living women. But it was intriguing to have a kind of visceral sense of both Goodall and Alice Waters, having talked to them, I could hear their voices and I could see their gestures in my mind's eye, and that's helpful. And I don't know whether it makes them come alive more. I mean, you know, you would know more than I. Well, they certainly do come alive.
Andy told me it took five years to write this compendium biography, but of course it took many years before that to get through all the literature on them and previous biographies and autobiographies and memoirs and letters and articles and to think about how she was going to formulate the narrative visionary women, how Rachel Carson, Jane Jacobs, Jane Goodall and Alice Waters changed our world is the title of Andrea Barnett's book. She was my guest on tonight's cakes. 95 share an hour. It's a totally inspirational book. These were not extraordinary people who set out to change the world. They were average, common citizens like you and me, secretaries and waitresses. They weren't particularly accomplished. They weren't rich. They weren't especially clever. Their loves were animals, food, the land and the streets of their neighborhoods. And what they had was an ardor and a fortitude to protect those things where they saw that so-called progress was doing the opposite. If you read this, you'll realize it just takes one person to make the effort and inspire and educate others to make a change in the world. You don't have to be a woman, but it's even more remarkable when it is women who do this, given that we still have secondhand status. If you want to listen to the show again, you can do so via iTunes or go to our dedicated website, kx935.com slash shows slash the dash Sharon dash hour. That's sharing without the G, hour with the H. I'm Sharon James, and here's hoping you'll come back to the Sharon Hour every week for more conversations on a wide variety of topics. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.